The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of the Capital Weekly Podcast. Today's episode was recorded live Thursday, May 25th at Roadmap 2035, Cars, Carbon, and Climate Change, How Do We Meet California's Zero Emissions Goals? And in today's episode, we are going to present the final panel of the day, panel three, the future versus the past, the impact on California's legacy industries. Our panelists today are Christopher Benjamin of Pacific Gas and Electric, John Costantino, Tradesman Advisors, Mark Nekadome of the Western States Petroleum Association, and Laura Renger of the California Electric Transportation Coalition. Our moderator for this panel is Brian Joseph of Capital Weekly. We'll go ahead and get started with our panel in just one moment, but first, let's thank our Roadmap 2035 sponsors. Support for Capital Weekly's Roadmap 2035 conference was provided by the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations, the Western States Petroleum Association, KP Public Affairs, Perry Communications, Capital Advocacy, Lucas Public Affairs, the Weideman Group, and the California Professional Firefighters. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back to our regular episodes next week. Uh, thanks, Tim. I'm uh, really excited for this uh, panel, uh, not only because it has such a uh, sci-fi sounding uh, title, The Future Versus the Past, but also because we have uh, such an esteemed uh, panelists here that uh, have not only a, a, a wide variety and a wide array of perspectives on this issue, but also have a, a deep uh, um experience in the political world. And so they're, they're going to have some really interesting uh, perspectives today on what I think in many ways is, is the most grounded uh, of the panels that we have today. Uh, you know, as a, as a, you know, consumer myself, I, I often wonder, you know, what's going to happen to my uh, gas guzzling Honda Civic uh, once we uh, move to zero emissions. So I'm, I'm very excited to, to have this discussion uh, about, uh, you know, the, uh, the evolution of these, uh, these industries. I'm going to do some brief introductions and we'll get right into it. To my immediate left is uh, Mr. Christopher Benjamin. He's the Director of Corporate Sustainability at uh, PG&E. To my next left is uh, Ms. Laura Renger. She is the Executive Director of the California Electric Transportation Coalition. Next, we have uh, Mark Nekadum, who is the Senior Director of Upstream Strategy for the Western States Petroleum Association. And finally... Uh, batting cleanup is John Constantino, who is the founder of Tradesman Advisors, and he was also the original climate change planning manager for the Air Resources Board's Office of, office of Climate Change. So as you can see, a, a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different uh, um, views on this issue. To start, uh, to give the, the audience a sense of where, where we're all coming from, I want everybody on the panel here to just sort of play Nostradamus a little bit. What is the impact of of, of zero our, our zero emission goals going to be on our quote unquote legacy industries and i think we, we're going to see uh, as each of our panelists talk that there's going to be some different definitions of what a legacy industry is and what those impacts could be but i'll let mr uh, benjamin start well uh, just uh, good afternoon everybody really appreciate the opportunity to uh, participate on this panel it's just been a great uh, great day of uh, i think really grounded uh, important conversations uh, for for our state and all of us who are working so hard to meet uh, the state's aggressive climate and clean energy goals. Um, so I lead the sustainability team uh, at PG&E. I've been with the company for about uh, 16 years. And um, uh, we've had, I think, as a company, a longstanding support for California's uh, climate and clean energy goals. And also, I think I just want to reinforce the just the the topic that has come up uh, many times today around um, the urgency of addressing the climate challenge. You know, we've uh, endured uh, a very unusual uh, series of winter storms this year. Uh, it's becoming more common to have extreme heat events uh, in the middle of the year and, of course, uh, increased wildfire risk. And so I think it just brings more more urgency and more focus uh, to, to this overall uh, conversation. And as a company, uh, last year, we set a series of uh, longer-term uh, climate goals, including uh, reaching a net zero energy system by 2040, uh, actually five years ahead of California's uh, carbon neutrality goal, with a number of uh, specific milestones and reduction targets before then. And so 
we're really focused on on this topic, this energy transition, as well as um, doing it affordably, doing it equitably. I think a lot of the the topics you know that have been discussed today, and uh, accelerating uh, EV adoption, uh, meeting. Uh, the state's uh, very aggressive goals and milestones is a really important uh, priority for us. Uh, about one in seven, I think, of all EVs in the country are plugged in right now uh, onto the onto the PG&E grid. So we've seen, I think, uh, a lot of adoption so far in our service area, and uh, just you know, all projections lead to to more and more of that. And so. Uh, with our um, focus today, I think it um, it really is in sort of three areas. Those are, uh, but sort of looking into the future, I, I don't I see those continuing. Um, so one area that's a really important focus is just around um, our customer programs and the role that we can play there. Uh, we offer a number uh, like the other um, utilities in California programs uh, today are to help uh, accelerate EV uh, charging and with a different with sort of focusing on different objectives, whether that's fleets or schools or parks or fast charging. We have a new program uh, we're going to be launching soon called Empower EV, which is really around um, underserved communities and, and helping to provide not only raise awareness, uh, but also um, uh, rebates for uh, the vehicles and the charging, just re recognizing that that's such an important area. So I think we will continue to, to focus on our customers and provide uh, the support that they, they need. Uh, the, the other area uh, that we are really focused on that's come up a couple times today that I think we're still early stages of, but it's really exciting is around vehicle to grid integration. And the role that um, all of these electric vehicles that will be proliferating throughout the state can play really as a resilience resource and sort of an extension of, of the grid. And we've got a number of pilot programs underway right now with different automakers and we're learning uh, a lot. And I think that's something to keep an eye on and uh, we're very, very excited about. And then the third area of course is uh, preparing the grid uh, for the uh, electrification uh, growth uh, that we are seeing and anticipating. Uh, uh, it goes without saying, that's an area where we, we've got a lot of work to do, um, and uh, we are laser focused on that and, um, and uh, excited about um, helping to, uh, to meet the states and our customers' needs. And I think I'll uh, close there. Sounds good. Ms. Ringer. Hey, thank you. Um, so I'm Laura Ranger with CaliTC. Um, for those of you that don't know CaliTC, we've been around for more than 25 years uh, promoting electric vehicles, clean technologies, and transforming our uh, transportation sector. Um, we represent both the automakers, and so we had the pleasure of hearing from my colleague, Mr. Douglas, this morning, so I'll try not to be too repetitive. Um, we also represent the utilities, and we represent the electrical uh, EV supply equipment or the, the charging station providers. So we've got a number of folks in our coalition, um, which is great to have that cross-section. And I think today, in thinking through the legacy indus industries, um, first of all, it's just as somebody who's been pretty much a regulatory attorney for 20 years at a utility, being on the future side of a sci-fi is probably the first time in my life that's ever happened. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I'll, I'll chalk that one down in my diary. But um, starting maybe with the utilities and what the impact will be on them, um, you know, I think that the biggest change will be that in the future, if things go the way we hope it goes, the utilities will be the primary fuel provider. The electric utilities will be the primary fuel provider for transportation fuel. And in a lot of ways, the utilities have been adapting to technology changes since you know the beginning of the companies uh, when they were founded, you, know, you think back to HD TVs or even before that, air conditioners. You know the utilities have had to adapt the the way that they provide electricity for the technology and the way that the technology has changed, and they've had to figure out how to come along with what the customers need. And so I'm confident that we can do that for transportation fuel as well. 
Um, it's a, but it is different. Like there's some challenges that we've talked about earlier in terms of, you know, when you, when you plan for a building load, you know, where the building's going to be. The building doesn't usually move when that was a joke. The building shouldn't move. Although we're in California. Come on guys. Come on. We're the last panel. Let's, uh, let's, we have to do a seventh inning stretch or something. Um, so, you know, we know how to plan for a stationary building and the load, more or less, not always. Sometimes there could be changes in industrial load and things like that. When you're planning for trucks and buses and big vehicles, they go different places. And so you might not necessarily know exactly where the load's coming. The other challenge for medium and heavy duty from the utility perspective is that the fleet owners are new to this. So they don't know what their use cases are going to look like. We don't really know. I'm saying we, from the perspective of the utility, don't really know what the use case is going to look like. We're figuring it out together. And that's, you know, it can be challenging. On the other hand, to your point about VGI and to the point that um, Commissioner Reynolds made, which was probably one of the best descriptions of downward pressure on rates that I've ever heard. If you're not overbuilding the system and you're charging at times when there's excess capacity on the grid, that's just an added benefit to utilization. And so unlike a building where or industrial uses that may be limited in when they can dispatch load or drop load. Vehicles have this great ability to, you know, charge off peak, not in every use case, but in a lot of use cases. So you can charge off peak, soak up excess capacity when there's excess capacity on the grid, reduce rates because you're spreading out the denominator, right? And so you're getting more utilization and, um, you can do more load management and load shifting when you get into vehicle two grid and adding capacity back to the uh, system it's even better so from the grid side there's challenges for sure but there's a lot of opportunities that are unique to being a transportation fuel su supplier and then i think as we talked about and i'm not sure how much steve got into this earlier but you know the automakers are doing so much with regard to electric vehicles we talked about it earlier this is a global planning effort this is not just for california they're planning these vehicles you know globally that's the trend and where folk where all the automakers are going they are all in they're literally now ev you know types models in every single single category of car that you could want. Um, and what we need to do for them is to give them certainty. You know, I think that's one thing that we really need to focus on is that they're in, they want to do uh, electric vehicles, but then we need to make sure that they have milestones to hit and that we don't change the the lanes on them. We don't change, you know, the, the requirements midstream because they plan years and years in advance. To, to make their models. Um, and so, yeah, with that, I think that, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier. One of the other things we really need to put support on the costs to bringing the car, the cost of the cars down and then support for uh, charging for those that don't have a dedicated parking space. And then maybe we'll get into that a little bit more later. Great, excellent, thank you. Mr. Yeah. Neckenham. Thanks. Um, so Mark Neckenham, I'm with the Western States Petroleum Association, uh, Kathy Reheis Boyd does send her regrets. She really does enjoy this gathering and uh, she got called away to a family matter. So uh, yesterday afternoon, she asked me to make some stuff up. So we'll see how I do. <clears throat> I'm a relatively new addition to the Western States Petroleum Association. Um, I'm actually what I can think of as a, a really fine example of the very long revolving door. Uh, I spent most of my career as a scientist, a senior executive, a political appointee in the Obama administration, the Jerry Brown administration, Steve Bullock in Montana. Uh, so I'm very, very familiar with what it's like to have the regulatory role, but as well be part of the very aspirational planning and then ask oneself how one becomes accountable for the outcomes of that planning. So my, my sympathy and sensitivity is with many of the people who've already served on these panels today uh, and in fact work with many of them because um, under Jerry Brown, um, I think there was even even for someone who was responsible for regulating oil and gas production in the state, among other things, uh, Jerry Brown always emphasized that our bottom line here is decarbonization. Uh, so 
Um, I've also spent as a scientist a good deal of time in that decarbonization conversation, about 25 years. And I think it's tougher than most of us imagine. The scale and pace is just mind boggling. So um, being with Western States Petroleum Association, uh, it was really an opportunity to come back to Sacramento. Um, I gave up a lovely house in Helena, Montana, uh, but come back to Sacramento and in some ways get another shoulder uh, push at the, at the boulder here. Uh, all of us are doing incredible, aspirational, powerful, future-oriented, even science fiction-like work. And uh, I, I crave that kind of work. I've always contributed to it. And here, oddly enough, with big oil, a chance to really move this transition. Um, Brian, I, I offered a, a friendly challenge to the title here being about legacy. Um, and I think probably of all the industries that might be represented in this conversation, uh, the oil and gas industry would be immediately assumed to be essentially like the pyramids or the dinosaurs, some legacy to be you know, put into a museum. Uh, and, and I would really challenge that. Uh, oil and gas is no more a legacy than would be concrete, um, steel, uh, fertilizer. Uh, those are just three of the fundamental pillars of what essentially drives a global economy. And I would say that oil and gas, uh, consider that oil and gas is essentially the management of carbon chains. Uh, we happen to get them out of the ground. We can get them lots of other places as well. But what the real point is, is we have carbon chains that become important part of our energy portfolio that I don't think we're going to walk away from all that easily. So I really urge us all not to get trapped into the binary choice between molecules and electrons. Uh, I, I really urge us all to think carefully about all of the above because as, and as the commissioner said during our keynote, I was at the same Stanford Energy Week. Uh, there is no doubt whatsoever that it will take everything we've got from every sector. So I would submit that the oil and gas industry being an incredible concentration of scientists, uh, engineers, uh, geologists, uh, political scientists, um, an enormous amount of talent that can bring solutions to the right tables. And uh, part of our fear, I'll be very frank with you, is here in California, um, because of our enthusiasm and our aspirations, uh, that the oil and gas industry has been less and less able to sit productively at solution-oriented tables. Uh, and I'm not whining. This is not, you know, this is not uh, me complaining so much as saying, given the amount of talent and given the attention and given the billions of dollars that are being invested by our industry in low and no carbon fuels, it makes sense for us to be embraced, well, maybe not happily, but, you know, embraced as partners in this discussion. How do we get there? Because we're not soon in 22 years about to say no to molecules and yes to electrons. I don't think we're going to get there that way. I also think it's important for us to keep in mind, and, and really this is, I wake up with this every day. I mean, this is a little weird. I'm a nerd. But, but this triangle sits in my head in some form every day. Californians drive 380 billion miles every year. It's five and a half round trips to the sun every day, 380 billion miles. That powers the fourth largest economy in the world, measured by sheer GDP. This is an enormous machine of creativity and culture and production. And that runs currently on fossil fuels. So this is harder and bigger than many people in the public imagine. And part of our job, not just in my industry, but all of us, is to educate the public on those basic facts. The basic facts of uh, California spend about $74 billion every year out of pocket on gasoline alone. And that's not diesel or jet fuel, just gasoline alone. So those are the kinds of things where, when I ask myself, what does our industry do? Uh, even while, let me whine for a minute, even while getting beat up every day. Uh, but, but the fact is that our industry does meet 
an enormous demand with affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner fuels all the time with a huge industry. So I'm going to leave it at that, but I just thought I'd offer that as kind of a perspective and framing on the notion of legacy. Thanks. I'll have some follow-up questions on that in a moment, but first, Mr. Constantine. Constantino, excuse me. No, you're fine. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks, Tim and Rich, for the invite. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I've been around a while, but and I represent a variety of companies. But as Kip Lipper said, these thoughts are my own and uh, not attributed to anybody. Um, so let's start with legacy versus future. Um, the businesses are going to do what makes money. And if you're a travel plaza owner, you are going to sell hydrogen or you're going to sell uh, electricity to your, to your trucks that are coming. So you're, you're not going to give up your real estate and, and go pack away just because you sell uh, gas and diesel today. And if you're a refiner, you have an obligation to shareholders to continue in whatever capacity that you can. And we've had two refiners completely switch over their refiners, refineries to date. Um, the low carbon fuel standard is driving flex fuel vehicles, E85. Uh, there's carbon capture happening uh, at biorefineries in the Midwest today. So the goal of the companies is to basically stay in business. And if the regulations are driving, the policy is driving a shift, they're gonna be part of that mix. Um, you know, I, I was sitting here thinking about, you know, the automobile, it's on both sides of this equation, right? It's the future and the present and the past. It's, it's three sides of the same equation. I don't know how that works. Um, but, you know, I've, I've seen companies that fought, I don't say fought, were not necessarily supportive of a change, but once the state made it clear this is the direction it was going, then, then the, the signal is get on board or get left behind. And whether it's hydrogen, biofuels, carbon capture, uh, low carbon fuels, battery components. There are a lot of traditional legacy companies that are working on, on the future of, of low carbon, um, low carbon uh, technologies. And then, and then you have what California has historically been is a bed of innovation. And so that could be a legacy industry in California is, is Silicon Valley and, and clean tech. Well, there's a number of companies that have really jumped on, this, on the scene for uh, low carbon industrial heat, um, and more efficient solar and, and, and steam and, and a variety of things. So I, I guess I would say the, the evolution of the, each business is is a continuum of of where they are and, and where they're going, but there is not, as Mark said, no one's going to shut the door just just because the policy changed. They're they're gonna they're gonna ride ride with it and and I think um, consistency of policy uh, is the key driver, right? If if you think it's going to be there and that's you that's the market you're going to have to sell into, then that's those are the changes you're going to have to make. I'm I'm glad we did it this way because now I have a ton of questions for you. I hope you're all I hope you're all ready to be on the hot seat. Um, the first place I wanted to start was uh, the discussion about preparing the grid for for uh, being the primary fuel source for transportation in California. Um, forgive my own ignorance, but what does that actually mean? What what is going to have to happen? physically, what is actually going to have to change in California in order for the grid to be the grid that we have now, what is going to have to happen to it in order to uh, um, it be able to pro provide the power necessary to be the primary fuel source for transportation in California? Are we going to need bigger facilities? Are we going to need more lines? I mean, what specifically is going to need to change in this community, in this state in order for that to happen? No, it's a great question. And I think um, it's come up, you know, I think consistently, you know, throughout the the, uh, the day. And I, I like the word, the way you framed it sort of around evolution. And I think that evolution is, is already underway. Uh, there, the sort of earlier version 
uh, of of the grid and how electricity was was supplied, uh, not only here in Ca California but uh, uh, everywhere, was you had uh, sort of a one-way flow, right? You had sort of these large-scale utility-scale sources of of uh, electricity, and then you had the customers on the other end. Uh, but you know what's one thing that has changed is it's become much more uh, decentralized with uh, just a proliferation of distributed energy resources. So it's become more more complex on the on the customer side, with the customers actually participating. So you have that two way flow. You're referring to to customers that have like solar panels, solar that about? battery storage, electric okay. vehicles. Um, so there's much more customer involvement in the grid. So they it's can, sort of that they can provide their own energy back to the grid, is what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. So it's become it's become come more more just more more of a uh, proliferation of these distributed energy resources. So you have that two way flow. Um, You've got much more, uh, much higher levels of renewable energy mm -hmm. on the grid, which of course the solar energy is generated when the sun is shining, the wind uh, when when it blows. So you need uh, a lot more energy storage within the grid in order to to balance those intermittent variable resources to provide reliable uh, energy. Uh, climate change uh, is occurring, and so we are seeing. Um, various uh, physical risks uh, to uh, to the system, uh, whether that's, and I, I talked about it earlier, extreme weather, wildfire risk. And so uh, there's a real focus on uh, making the grid more resilient uh, to the different uh, impacts of climate change. And we're very fortunate here in the state of California to have so much climate science that's available. Uh, there's a great uh, a resource called CalADAPT where the, the state of California has made uh, just a wide variety of uh, climate uh, projections and, and, and information available to planners. So you can actually do uh, uh, build that into to the planning uh, of the grid, which we are certainly doing as are, are the other utilities. Uh, there's a need to, as we uh, transition to growth and electrification, for more capacity uh, for, for the grid. And that's uh, at all three levels. So it's transmission capacity, bringing more electricity throughout the system, uh, distribution capacity, substation capacity. So it's sort of at the macro and, and the micro uh, level. So it, it um, and a need for more visibility into the grid. So more technologies and sensors so that you can see the, the flow. So it's, it's becoming more, um, more sophisticated um, and more intelligent. Um, and I think that's that's really critical because, um, uh, as as Laura was mentioning, uh, the uh, you know we've got pretty large projections for electrification growth in the state of California, but it's not all going to happen kind of in a straight line or in one place. It's going to be happening uh, in in a more um, uh, I, I'd say sort of incremental. Uh, so uh, way and so what it really I think uh, leads to is a more holistic and longer uh, term uh, planning horizon so that we can actually do and, and um, I think it's been mentioned a, a couple of times today this idea of better forecasting of where and when this is going to materialize so that uh, we can plan for it as early as possible um, so I mean that that's sort of um, and, and it, it's not the future. I mean, this is happening right now. As I mentioned, one in seven EVs in the country are plugged into PG&E's grid. We've got uh, a proliferation of, of rooftop solar. So here in California is actually a glimpse into the future for other places in, in the country. So bottom line, basically, when you when you talk about uh, improvements to the grid, you're talking about more capacity, being able to, to, to hold more energy, being able to, to move it back and forth more freely from the customers to the to the utilities themselves, and then also being able to see exactly where it is. Is that a fair way to put it? That, and, and one other thing that, that Laura mentioned, which I think is really important, is this time of day. Yeah. Uh, when people are using the electricity, because um, the electricity usage in the state is not flat, you know, during sure. the, the day. So it, it, it the peaks and valleys, sure. So um, a real focus on uh, what we would call load management, or the idea of being able to incentivize people uh, through rates or, or other means to use electricity to to um, to vary their electricity at those peak peak uh, times a day and have more control of that because then you can actually um, uh, uh, it, it minimizes the strain you know on the grid and like we've the last couple 
summers, you know, we've experienced these extreme heat events um, in California, and it's been a, a, a just a renewed focus on the role of demand response. Um, and uh, we have many voluntary demand response programs, but bringing more certainty to that so that we can help meet those extreme uh, conditions uh, in a more sustainable way and in a way that give, delivers a better customer experience. So I think that that load management piece is a is a really exciting area of innovation, and there's a lot of work underway to um, to um, figure out how best best to do that. Ms. Ranger, it sounded like you had something you wanted to add. No, I was just going to talk about load management and demand response. It's not a physical asset, but it's a conceptual. Uh, framework, I guess, that acts as a physical asset. It's, it's a planning it's, tool. It's a, no, it's about? a real-time tool. It's a okay. customer behavior tool that, you know, if we talk about V2G, which is taking the capacity from the battery of a vehicle and giving it back to the grid, which is very exciting. You get 92%, 93% of the benefits from a planning perspective from vehicle grid integration, which is just having your customer turn off the charging during peak periods. because electricity is location specific. Sure. So, you know, if I live in a certain area where um, our peak is, you know, the time now is four to nine in Southern California, but really the peak is about six to seven thirty. Um, so if, if we can get our customers just to turn off anything they don't absolutely need during that period of time, that's just as valuable as giving it back to the grid. It's not like you get to keep the electricity if you don't, you know, use it. You don't get to squirrel it away like cookies. Like once it's gone, you know, it's used, it's used. So, so demand response is inexpensive and relatively speaking, and it has, you know, so, so many benefits for. Is there an education component to that as well? I yes, imagine? that's a really good point. And actually somebody from your company talked about that with me a while ago. Um, we do need to do a lot of education. And I think the state and the um, CAISO has done a really good job with the you know flex alerts. And But we do, I think, need to do a little bit more. And what is tricky in that regard is that you also don't want to scare people. So people in their head, customers think, oh, I'm going to have to turn off my, you know, charging, well, then I shouldn't get an electric vehicle. And that could scare them. You know, I've owned an electric vehicle since 2014. And I, it never has impacted my charging. Because once you get educated, and you know, your car and you know where to charge, or if you're lucky enough to have charging at home, you can just work around it. And it has very minimal impact. But it takes it takes some time. And we talked about that earlier about sort of the uptime to get educated on your own vehicle and your own, you know, charging and where the chargers are, et cetera. And so I think that's what scares people a little bit. It, it, it almost sounds like, uh, you know, when you get a new cell phone and you have to sort exactly. of get used to, right. oh, I have to charge it now versus, you know, well, and a like day for, from now. For a lot of us, the it is like a cell phone and your app for your charging is on your phone and you hit the button or or you have it automatically scheduled to stop charging during your utilities peak period. I, I was just, I, I you had a, that glint in your eye. So please. <laughs> so uh, my focus is over the last two years has been on what's called the advanced clean fleet rule, which is a medium and heavy duty zero emission vehicle mandate, as opposed to the advanced clean cars, which is light duty. And uh, time of use rates, you know, are going to impact all the UPS and FedEx trucks that come back at six o'clock and, and need to be ready in the morning. It's going to be a lot different than if I drive and park at work and come home and I can turn on at midnight or it's all automated. So the, the heavy duty sector is going to look a lot different than the, the personal use uh, sector. And, you know, I've known for a long time that if I turn my dishwasher on at, at peak hours, it's going to cost me an extra nickel. Well, that may or may not matter, but if it's an extra dollar, then I'm then I'm thinking about it. So I think that time of use and and customer behavior is really gonna really gonna impact uh, folks on the medium and heavy duty side more. But when you the, the original question was, how's it gonna look different? Well, I think every location that's gonna have a charging station or a hydrogen station that doesn't have one now, every depot, every plumber's yard, every, you know, they have to get, it has to get built up. You have to find a place that's not in an easement, that's not in a driveway, that's not next to the loading dock, that's not, right? So all that planning may need additional substations. You may need, uh, you, you know, 
it seems like the the total megawatts is going to be handled, but it's it's where are you at in the port, where are you at in an airport, where are you at it, right? Those are the the where the real rubber meets the road. And I live in a rural part of Northern California, and reliability is is a concern uh, because trees fall on wires and and so grid hardening is is a I know PG&E is working on that. Um, so, but those are just some of the, the things that popped in my head when you asked the question. So I'm happy that the panel has so far responded on the demand side and the, and, you know, bringing the, the technology into the 21st century. And I think that's completely appropriate. What we have not yet talked about is where's the generation come from? That's where I was just going to ask you, sir. Well, then I will give a very poor answer. Uh, what The really impressive thing about California, and I'm really very impressed by this, is in the last 21, 22 years, uh, we, we in 2001 had about 55 gigawatts of installed capacity in the state. Most of it is baseload power. That is firm power. You can basically ramp up or ramp down in 10 to 20 minutes because most of the natural gas or coal. We have now added, we're up to about 83 gigawatts of installed capacity. Most of that increase is intermittent power, solar and wind primarily. And as we all know, the duck curve, you know, the, the demand during the day is not, is not concomitant with the amount that we're generating from those intermittent sources. So when we imagine increasing the generating capacity to about three times its current capacity to meet the electrification of the transportation sector, uh, I start imagining solar panels and wind farms from here to Utah because at six acres per megawatt installed current solar efficiency, uh, that's a lot of land. And I remember under the Brown administration, having the sole authority as the director of the Department of Conservation for basically rolling extremely productive farmland out of production in order to replace it with solar panels. And I had to remove those by act of the director from the Williamson Act and counties would lose that revenue source and not replace it because solar doesn't pay local taxes. And I can tell you that there were some very tense conversations about that. That's a micro, micro or nano level policy level struggle that we're all going to have as we figure out where are we going to generate all this stuff. You suggested earlier uh, in your in your opening statement that uh, that uh, oil and gas should not be looked at as a uh, um, that's an ancient uh, or a, a, a pyramid-like, I think, as you put it, uh, um, form of uh, of energy. So, how is oil and gas in a zero emissions world going to be a player in generating capacity? How 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 can oil and gas do that? Yeah, um, so I'll avoid the technology and all the nerdiness around that. But here's the basic equation: currently in the scoping plan to get to 2045 with net, with net zero emissions. Uh, the scoping plan anticipates about 100, uh, 100 megatons per year of carbon sequestration. And in fact, the bottom line for the scoping plan and most of our energy planning is we cannot get there without carbon capture and storage of some kind or carbon engineered carbon removal of some kind. Uh, currently, it's anticipated that the big, um, what would the accountants call it, the kind of the, the account reconciler is direct air capture. Um, that's that's on the very, very beginning of the slope of development for technology and efficiency. So the what I re really appreciated about the earliest panel, the first panel was let's stop talking about specific technologies and targets and let's start talking about decarbonization and what's competitive in the space about the lowest carbon megajoule that you can deliver efficiently and affordably. And oil and gas currently, and for the last century, has been, and I'm not declaring victory, this is not biased in any way, it's simply a physical fact, is that crude oil is the highest concentration of usable energy per cubic meter per megajoule delivered. It is the densest form of energy that we've managed to master in any scale. Now, can we replace that with other technologies that do not have carbon chains at their very beginning? I don't know. But I do know that carbon chains, crude oil, 
whatever you want to call it, um, are an essential part of that equation at this point. And as almost all of our panelists have said, the competitive replacement of that seems to be what the real problem is, because I don't hear us saying, let's claw back a $3.2 trillion economy in California. I don't hear us saying that. Maybe we really want that to happen. So I'm concerned that the eagerness to get rid of oil and gas, because it is easily demonized, and I can readily admit that many of our members of our industry have um, contributed to the negative view. I think that was softly put. Um, that that I think we're we're too eager to say let's shut down production and that somehow leads magically to climate mitigation, and that's just not true. California produces out of the ground between twenty five and twenty seven percent of what we consume, and the rush to shut down production in California, where California produces under the strictest environmental uh, controls anywhere in the world. I know I regulated it and uh, shift it to where? And currently it's Saudi Arabia, Ecuador, Venezuela. I mean, it's offshore and we do not yet have the port capacity or terminal capacity to replace current multiple hundreds of thousands of barrels per day of consumption in California with imports or refined product. So there's our worry is that somehow we may have our Diablo Canyon moment in the fuels market. And by the time that happens, many of our producers, our refiners will have said, you know, it's not worth $800 million to do a turnaround on that refinery. We're, I'm not predicting, I'm not, I'm, I can't do that as a member of WISPA, but I can say that investor calls are really uh, chilling moments every quarter for many of our members. Because investors are saying, I wouldn't put 800 million into that. And so what's been imagined in the scoping plan and other documents as this kind of gradual decline curve to 2045 is actually a series of really bumpy cascades in which each one of those drops, there's likely to be things like price spikes on fuel. There's likely to be hedging and risk mitigation strategies that are extremely expensive. So we're not looking at this kind of science fiction, Star Trek version of smooth transition, we're looking at the kinds of things that historically in the last two centuries have led to massive war and disruption. Now, again, I'm not being dire and predictive. I'm simply saying, well, you know, I'm a student of history and it's like, it's kind of been rough when we've done these things before. So I would just caution all of us to think very carefully about the unintended consequences of so readily and eagerly going after oil and gas as if it can be sort of taken out of the picture and we can move on. And it's, it's it concerns me. To summarize your point, Mr. Nekadum, you're, you're saying that oil and gas are, are, are still at this moment, the, the most efficient and, and most cost-effective uh, fuel source. Is that, is that Under current technologies and being the son of a nuclear engineer, um, I think nuclear has great promise but my father suffered the same thing under the nuclear industry as the oil and gas industry is going through right now. So my my my, my guess is is that the other panelists have a thought on that or have, have some responses to that. They're taking into account the uh, the the health impacts, the costs of days away from work, from the childhood cancer rates. The I mean we we haven't really had I don't think too many ENGOs on the panel today, but I think our friends at some of you know, the ANGOs that we work with could refute that gas is the most cost-effective unit of energy for all populations when we look at the impacts to public health from the emissions. So let me be clear, Laura. I, I'm talking as a student of the laws of thermodynamics. I'm not talking about uh, public health impacts, environmental Well, but you've care. made a cost argument. I, I have made a cost argument, and I'm, I'm not being an advocate for oil and gas, what I'm simply saying is we have found in the last century and a half that the highest density fuel that is manageable, distributor, distributable, and usable by end use has been, has been fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. I would love to see us not have that be true in a century from now. What I'm saying is the transition is not going to be as quick or as smooth mm -hmm. as many of us would like to imagine. Does anyone on the on the panel have an idea of how to make it 
more smooth and more quick? Or 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 is or is uh, or is what uh, Mr. Uh, Nakadam talking about in in your view not a, a concern? I would say the policies of the state are already shifting the cost arguments around the low carbon fuel standard. If you're an oil and gas product, you have a an additional cost burden. And if you have a, if you're a low carbon fuel, including electricity, uh, you get a credit. So you get a, there's a subsidy. And so that, that flips the, the cost argument on its head a little bit, right? And as the regulation gets more stringent, the cost to produce uh, biofuels and EVs is cheaper and the cost to, to sell the market petroleum products gets more expensive. And um, so that that's already happening now. Um, you know, we the the laws of economics dictate that at some point, if we shut down enough demand, you're not going to need every refiner that's currently operating. And so I, I would not disagree with Mark that that these things don't happen in an orderly fashion, right? Somebody's going to make a decision in a boardroom somewhere and that will be felt by every consumer uh, now the, the economy will not collapse and and you know it won't be dire that way but it, it it's certainly more jaggedy than smooth in the next 25 years please in terms of the just transition i do think that that is something that is a state we need to really look at, um, not for the oil companies' profits, but for the workers. You know, they do employ a number of um, our, our uh, Californians with good paying jobs, and we've got to figure out a way, as you know, uh, Scott talked about earlier, to transition in a fair way that we still have family sustaining wages. And, you know, a lot of the jobs in the new energy economy will provide that type of, you know, family sustaining wage and training and um, ability to be more inclusive, but we have a long way to go to get there. So I agree with you on that point. I think it, it is important that we focus our efforts on workforce uh, transition and development. The other thing I'd add to that is, you know, it's a the transition that we're embarking on is complex, um, and you know what we're talking about is is transforming our energy system, you know, as we know it, at scale, um, quickly in order to stave off the worst in, uh, potential impacts of climate change. So the stakes are are high on doing this and getting it right, but it's new and it's different and. Um, and we're going to learn a lot, I think, along the way. Um, I do think that, um, and this has been, I think, a, a consistent theme during uh, today's discussion, is we need to change the way that we plan uh, the energy system and do it much more holistically and, and collaboratively and in a more nimble manner. Um, uh, and I think there are some really encouraging um you know, signposts along those lines. One is just the, uh, I think the, um, uh, the, the state's level of maturity with the planning around uh, the scope, scoping plan, the way that various agencies uh, have acknowledged uh, the, the need and, and are working. Um, we've heard about the today, uh, different agencies uh, working together to line up their planning timeframes and horizons, but also locally. Uh, I spent the day uh, yesterday in Napa at the first ever Napa Climate Summit. And there, uh, there's a lot of really innovative projects uh, happening in that region uh, related to energy. And so the idea was, well, let's get everybody in the same room, along with the utilities, along with the local officials, and, and have more visibility into holistically, how do these plans add up? What are the changes that are, are going to be needed? What are the expectations uh, for, for the utility? And I think that um, the more that we do that, where it's sort of more proactively uh, thinking regionally about the changes that are happening and that are coming so that we can plan for it, uh, it'll allow for a smoother uh, transition. So, um, and there was a comment earlier, just even with regard to how we plan the grid from that sort of just-in-time to the longer term uh, planning horizon. And I think that you're seeing that happen. Um, and I think that's a, that's really, really important. Um, and uh, I do think it's helpful 
that California has uh, clear milestones to hit because it gives those benchmarks uh, and those bogeys, if you will, uh, to aim for. Um, and uh, and so the uh, the policy signals being so clear in the state is, uh, I think, a really helpful thing relative to uh, maybe some other parts of the country. I uh, I have like ten more questions listed here, but I'm seeing we're getting out of time. So let's uh, let's open it up to questions uh, from the audience. Okay, so I don't know if uh, there's, we do have an audience question here. Hi, um, I just wanted to bring up the discussion of saying that investors are not willing to pay for this right now. Um, if that is the case, and it's a purely economic question of whether we're going to invest in clean energy, how can we create a valuation of the health of future generations? And how can we incorporate that value into an economic number to create change? Because it seems like that is something that needs to happen for this transition. And so I'm just wondering if anyone has any comments on that. I would just say, there's, I, I would say there is um, strong interest. Uh, and, and you can't think of the investors as sort of one, you know, kind of monolithic, you know, group um, in clean energy. And, uh, and there's just been growing interest, I think growing recognition among investors about climate risk and the, um, and the need to uh, transition our, our energy system to reduce uh, the, the climate risk. There's a lot of um, focus on improved disclosure from companies about the climate risks they face, the transition plans, the goals, the targets. There's a, a proposed rule from the securities, U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission uh, that has some pretty specific uh, proposals in terms of disclosure so that investors have better information about companies' transition plans and, and the risks that they're facing. But I think that there's a huge opportunity here to invest in um, a cleaner energy uh, future. There's tremendous risk and challenge. And I think that that's all, it's really important to focus on that. But I do think uh, there is opportunity here for innovation and, and different ways of, of, of managing our energy system. And we certainly see, um, a, uh, a just a lot, a lot of interest in 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 that transition in the future and what we're doing to uh, to plan for that. Better answer than I could have given. Thank you. Do, do we have any other any other questions question. from the audience? I do have another question. Um, so we've alluded to this that California's oil and gas industry is tremendous. It is a huge part of our economy, and we've talked about how that would impact things on the big picture. I'm wondering more on the small picture. What is going to happen to the thousands and thousands of gas stations, people that are are trucking oil and oil and and gas around in their vehicles? I mean, not people that are using it, but people actually delivering it to the gas stations. That's a huge industry. And is there anything being planned for the transition as we step away from that? I mean, this is only twelve years away. Uh, you know, I, I'm just wondering if anyone is looking at that aspect of this. I don't have an answer to that in particular, but I do think one thing to add to that question is that when you we look at predictions for future charging, we predict that most people, 80% of charging will happen not in a public space. So for convenience store owners, that's going to be a problem. That's a huge portion of their business that if those trends materialize, they won't have people stopping to get Cokes and it'll have to just, you will just do like what EV drivers do where you go to the 7-Eleven just to get a Coke, not to get, you know, not because you're there for gas. So. Well, I know we're running out of time. So real quickly, you, you mentioned 12 years. 12 years is the sales mandate for all these things, but we're going to have liquid fuels, whether they're fossil or biofuels in internal combustion engines for several decades uh, in significant quantities. But I mean, but significantly declining quality quantities. I mean, 12 years, it'll have to be 100%. And how much longer will, you know, fossil fuel powered cars continue to, to be driven? And I think that's the other thing is, if you don't have an easy to find fuel source, that's going to add to the decline in the fossil fuel. So that's that's my question is what happens to all of this infrastructure that currently exists that in ostensibly 20 to 25 years will be of relatively little value? Oh, well, You're dying to answer, go ahead. I'm not dying to, in fact, I'm dying not to answer. <laughs> there are 36 million cars in California. 12 years from now, if the average retention cycle is eight years per car, 
that is those who don't nurse everything out of their car for 22 years, which is That's the me. other horizon. Actually, a lot of people and a lot more people are going to be wanting to squeeze every mile they can out of their internal combustion engine. And that means that if the infrastructure does go through that bumpy, clunky, cascading step function decline, uh, we could be looking at anywhere between 10 and $15 a gallon for just gasoline alone. And we've done actually some of this based on some public uh, data and uh, International Energy Agency calculations and EIA calculations. Uh, these are uh, sort of standard risk hedging factors that are common in the industry. Um, it, it, and I, we have already had panels talk about the disequality in the system. Power always distributes unequally uh, and lack of power always distributes unequally. Um, and that, that, that kind of bumpiness can be mitigated to a degree, but keep in mind also that $1.28 for every gallon of gas that's purchased in the, in the state goes to programs like the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, to uh, incentive programs for EV purchases. So there's a whole bunch of stuff in the current economy of liquid fuel transportation that will radically shift, and again, not shift smoothly. We, we've got a couple more minutes here. I, I, I wanted to sort of highlight a, a, a theme that's been running through not only this conversation, but every conversation that we've had today. And that's the tension between economics and for lack of a better term, the ethics of protecting our, our environment. And my sense is, is this whole issue uh, of zero carbon emissions, the future, all of that comes down to that balance. You know, how do we balance between people's jobs, their livelihood, our, our, our uh, exploding economy, and doing the right ethical thing for the planet and for our future generations. And I, I'm just wondering, to close, if, if each of you might sort of talk about how you weigh those two huge uh, values and, and, and where, where you come down on that and how do you balance those two things, if, if that makes sense. I know that's kind of a, well, a airy-fairy kind of way of putting it, but if, if there's a way you can kind of... What you're talking about is sustainability. Um, and, and the way, that's how we, that, that we, we focus on something we call the triple bottom line, which is how we frame sustainability and it's people, planet and California's prosperity, which is really that sort of that economic health and economic vitality. And one word I think that you've heard come up a lot today is just this balance, just finding the right balance, because we need to save the planet, uh, but we have to do it affordably. And we have to really think about the people aspect of this, the workforce aspects, the equity implications, the just transition uh, and how we do it. And it's not easy, but that is really the, somebody earlier talked about a Rubik's cube. That is the Rubik's cube that we're trying to solve is the right balance between those three elements. And that is, that's, that's a sustainable future. And I, I think we've got um, policy signals, as I mentioned, how we do this is gonna be, uh, we'll make some mistakes. Uh, we'll try different things. Uh, but the more that uh, we are collaborating across industry sectors and realizing how much we are all connected and reliant on one another, I think that's really our key to our shared uh, success is everybody kind of understanding the really important role. And I mean, everybody uh, and, and sort of um, meeting their commitments. And that, that includes uh, us uh, certainly as well. I, I just think we need to expand, not expand, but be more honest about what are we really comparing in terms of the paradigm. We're not, yes, it, it, there are certain costs that are um, more easily quantifiable to have this be the tension, but when you look at the health impacts, when you look at the uh, impacts of climate change, the cost of climate change, the all of the migration that will happen, the um, you know displacement, the, all, all the horrors that are go going to come, they're gonna have real significant economic impacts. We've already seen it with wildfires. You know, we'll see more of that. Um, it's not a fair comparison. And I think on the plus side, you know, the costs of electric vehicles just keep going down. The batteries get better and better. The technology gets better. The grid gets cleaner. So 
I think what we need to focus on is making sure that this transition is done equitably and that we're putting our state funding and our public funding into those communities that need the most help. I hear your question, Brian, is really an intergenerational equity question. And intergenerational equity has always been part of the human experience. And for most of our at least known history, it's been a cultural dynamic where unmeasured things are deeply meaningful to our behavior. In the last couple of centuries, that's shifted from a cultural calculation to an economic calculation. And we're doing fairly poorly at completing the equation. My sense is that with climate change and the environmental movement of the last 50 years, we are starting to move back to cultural calculation where meaningful change in behavior is done, not because it's in your own interest, but in somebody else's interest. And I hold out a great deal of hope in that, even though I'm a technocrat uh, from a cultural and philosophical point of view, I hope very much that we begin to put more on the weight of the foot of cultural calculation. And I'll just wrap up by saying that if you if you transition between now and 2050, it seems easy. If you say we got to do it in a week, it's much more harder. It's much more expensive. And uh, California's put out some pretty robust near-term goals. Some of these decisions people have to make, including utilities and uh, fleets, are literally in the next six months. Right? They're making decisions that uh, will impact everybody. So. The longer we wait, the more expensive it gets, the longer the transition period, the easier it is, but you can't wait. You got to start. So it, 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 I think the word was balanced and I'll just leave it there that it's a, it's a, it's a tightrope we're walking. I think I'd like it if you all join me in thanking our, Paul, our uh, panelists here for a, a really robust discussion. Thank you very much. And we will get this up as a podcast, uh, probably uh, next week and we'll also make videos available the capital weekly podcast is produced by tim foster for open california if you enjoyed today's episode we hope you'll go onto itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review thanks a lot and we'll see you next week